Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. I don't know why he disappeared. When they said it was suicide, it was like he ran out of the house like he was late for something. Who sits there and says, oh, you know what, 6.30, time to jump off a big roof. I kept saying there is something bigger, there is something more going on. I think he turned over some rock and he shouldn't have turned it over. But I know that he didn't kill himself. My hope is that there is somebody that's out there that knows the truth. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavor to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy and as always leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the strange death of Ray Rivera. So on the 24th of May 2006, the body of Ray Rivera was found inside the historic Belvedere Hotel in the Mount Vernon neighborhood of Baltimore, Maryland. Although the event was ruled a probable suicide by the Baltimore police department, the circumstances of Rivera's death are very mysterious and disputed, to say the very least. Ray Omar Rivera was born on June 10th of 1973 to Angel and Maria Rivera. At the time of his disappearance, Rivera was a 32-year-old finance writer for the Oxford Club as a video contractor. Rivera and his wife Allison had relocated from California to Baltimore for his longtime friend Porter Stansbury as a writer and videographer for Stansbury's investment company, Stansbury and Associates Investment Research, a subsidiary of Agora Publishing. Rivera had stopped working for the company six months prior to his death in May 2006, but according to Stansbury, he did freelance work for another subsidiary of Agora Publishing. Porter and Ray, to my understanding, had a long friendship stretching back uh, years. It was stated that both Ray and Porter had known each other since they were teenagers and had actually gone to prom together. Now, he was last seen leaving his Northwood home early on the evening of May 16th, 2006. The last person to see him alive was his wife's work colleague who was staying over as a house guest. Allison at the time, meanwhile, was out of town on a business trip in Richmond, Virginia. So according to Allison's work colleague's account that she gave, Rivera seemed preoccupied with an assignment on the night that he disappeared. At about 4pm, work colleague heard Rivera answer a call on his cell phone and the reply was, oh shit, and he ran out of the back door as if he was late for an appointment. He left driving his wife's car only to come back very briefly and run out again, leaving the lights and the computer on in his office. Ellison tried to reach her husband on his cell phone that day but couldn't get a hold of him. She finally called a work colleague at 10pm and asked her about her husband, but the work colleague said she hadn't seen him since he had left earlier that evening. At that point, Ellison assumed that her husband was just out drinking. It wasn't until the next day that she began to worry. After spending the whole day calling friends and family looking for Rivera, his wife filed a missing persons report at about 3pm on May 17th. Now, my understanding is Ellison was the spearhead behind the investigation. The Baltimore Police Department at the time that he disappeared had a swathe of murder cases that they were trying to deal with and they were very quite overwhelmed as the way it was described to me so Allison was kind of like she the way the detective in the episode described it was she was working harder if not as hard as the police were and she was really the one that, that was really gunning trying to overturn every single rock in this case to try and find out what happened to her husband she is probably one of the most amazing people I have seen in as far as being able to investigate 
someone's untimely death. Alison's an amazing person and her investigative abilities and her, just her persistence of never giving up and her motivation to just continue going, even to this very day, is very admirable. And I have a lot of respect for Alison and hopefully one day this case will get a resolution and it will be solved. I found the most compelling character in the story as it's told in your series to be Alison, Ray's wife. She was an incredible investigator in her own right, very involved in the case, and also had a lot of participation in the production of this episode. Can you just talk a little bit about Allison and your impressions of her? Allison was really the driving force of the investigation. She almost did this single-handedly. The Baltimore police were overwhelmed with other homicide cases, um, and it was just not something. This was such a strange, bizarre case. It was not something that they could tackle easily. So Allison really became the investigator in this case. She went up on the roof. She looked at all the security footage, the security camera footage. She hired a private investigator and a trajectory engineer. Uh, she went and visited with the, the medical examiner to try and get more details. She did everything she possibly could to solve this case, but she ran into dead ends. Uh, and that's when she she left Baltimore and and moved away. When we approached her about doing this story, she was very hesitant because she's tried to move on with her life. But like in all the other Unsolved Mysteries cases that we've done, it's very it's a very, very difficult thing to do. Her final decision was, if I don't do this, this could be the one thing that would lead to a resolution. So I have to do this. When I met with Bray's wife, Allison, I advised her that she needed to be careful because she was working as hard as I was, if not harder, to investigate this. She was determined to turn every stone that can be turned all the way to his company, to his friends, every aspect of it. And if she's this afraid of what might have happened, she needs to be very cautious about who she talks to, when she talks to him, and how she goes about it. And just, she had to watch her back. After spending the whole day calling friends and family looking for Rivera, his wife filed a missing persons report at about 3 p.m. on May 17th. Then, on the 23rd of May, Ellison's car was discovered at a parking lot in Mount Vernon. His decomposed body was found the next day in a closed meeting room of the Bel Belvedere Hotel in Baltimore. Now, the Belvedere Hotel was built in the early 1900s and had a macabre history of unfortunate incidents on its grounds, including a number of suicides. In more recent years, it's been largely converted into a condo building. The hole was found in the meeting room roof and Rivera's injuries indicated that he had probably come off the top of the Belvedere which was 14 stories up and crashed through the lower roof which is what the official stated at the time. Baltimore City Police said they had no witnesses that saw Rivera on or coming off of the roof. Now as police began to analyze the case numerous aspects seemed odd about Rivera jumping off the main roof off of the Belvedere Hotel partly due to the hotel's mansard roof. There was a considerable horizontal distance between the hotel town and the location of the hole in the lower roof. The vertical fall of approximately 177 feet and the building height was 188 feet, which is 57 meters, would have taken approximately 3.3 seconds. This suggests if he came from the roof and traveled a horizontal distance of 101 feet, 13 meters before impact, he would have had to have had a horizontal speed of 29 miles per hour. 
Ray was wearing flip-flops or was barefoot, we don't know, and would have had a maximum run-up of just over 15 feet or 5 meters, which would have made it 2.5 seconds. So it doesn't really make sense that he jumped, if this maths is correct, and I'm pretty leaning pretty heavily towards it, it was, because Allison, is, from what I understand, she actually hired a trajectory expert to look into whether this was actually possible, and but judging, I don't know what his calculations were, but I do know that she did hire someone to look into this. Very top of the hotel roof. At best, maybe from point to point was maybe a 40 foot open area. Of course, there's air ducts, there's air conditioning units. There's a lot of different structures up there. The hole was quite a distance out. The rough angles I could get were 45 feet from the Belvedere to where the hole was even to attempt a jump, a running jump, to get to the point where the hole was, was, in my mind, virtually impossible. He was a tall, fit man, but he also was in flip-flops. The hole never made sense, like where it was. So my dad and I went up on the roof. I'm afraid of heights. Ray was afraid of heights, and being up on the roof scared me to absolute death because there's no railing up there and it's very far down. I couldn't imagine why he would be up there. Immediately, nothing about the evidence at that point felt good to me. The rooftop, the location of the hole, I didn't believe it Ray went off that top of the roof. So after that, we went over to the parking garage right adjacent to the building. From the perspective of the garage, the hole was too far away. I mean, he'd have to, like, go way out there to reach that area where the hole was. The top of the garage roof is only 20 feet. So to me, it seems feasible a man could survive that, even with going through the rooftop. Now, the extent of the injuries to the body were pretty, pretty intense. So that theory went to rest pretty quick. And I mean, I find it interesting that she even went up there herself and had a look over. Now, Ray was scared of heights. Her and her father were scared of heights. So why would he jump off of somewhere? And why would he kill himself the one way that he absolutely is terrified of? Uh, I don't know what the uh, results were from the trajectory expert that she hired. But I'm assuming that based on the maths I've seen, I don't think that it was possible he would have jumped from that roof, at least not without help. Because even if he had jumped, it just, it, the math done that up. And I'm sure the trajectory expert would have told Allison the same thing thing. An additional theory is that Rivera may have jumped from a ledge several floors below the roof, but it would have been difficult, almost impossible, almost, but it would have been very difficult for Rivera to access the ledge from the privately owned condominiums and offices that had windows onto the ledge, because you would have had to have gone into the building, gone into someone's condominium, which is privately owned, and then jumped off the ledge. I, I really, I mean, I don't see that happening. I mean, I'm, it's not to say that he didn't know someone who worked at the Belvedere. We don't know that somebody at Stansbury and Associates didn't have a condominium at the Belvedere, maybe he fell out that way. I, I just don't know. It's just another piece of the puzzle that doesn't make sense. Medical examiners determined he died from multiple and severe injuries consistent with a fall from a height, but they made no ruling as to homicide, suicide, or an accident. Instead, they deemed it and declared it undetermined because the circumstances surrounding the incident were and still are very unclear. Allison also claimed that she spoke with the medical examiner who told her that what wasn't consistent with the fall was the way his shins were broken, but she refused to elaborate on anything else. Part of my trying to figure all of this out is that I wanted to talk to the medical examiner. I had a whole list of questions on how Ray died. 
or the possibilities. I met with the medical examiner and she closed the door and she said, I know what they're trying to do and we are not closing this case. They said that what wasn't consistent with the fall was the way that his shins were broken. And that's all she would say. They did not say anything of what would cause the breaks. They just said it was inconsistent. So there was a, a police officer who was with Allison when she went to the ME. He stepped out of the room, and, the, and Allison had this sidebar conversation with the ME about the shins and the, the, you know, the, the way his shins were broken. Then the police officer came back in, and they stopped talking about it. So Allison didn't get any more details than just that. But they did say, we are not closing this investigation. There's just too much going on here that, that is unexplained. Now, this is where the case gets odd and really spooky. Ray's widow, Allison, gave him a money clip as a wedding gift that was engraved. This has never been found. She stated in the Netflix rebooted series of Unsolved Mysteries that she searched his car upside down for it and couldn't find it. And she found it weird that it was missing, and so do I. But what wasn't found with Ray was um, the money clip. I bought him for a wedding gift and then engraved his initials RR on it. He would have, you know, his IDs, money, and all that kind of stuff in it, you know. Um, so, yeah, he liked, it was, it was his thing, his little signature piece. That has never been recovered. When I got the car back from the police department, I turned that car upside down for that money clip because it was just something that I was like, that that doesn't seem right, that that's just gone. Why it's missing and why it's never been found, I'm not exactly 100% sure. There's probably a myriad of reasons why it's missing, but it's interesting that it was never found. If he keeps this thing on him at all times and uses it at all times, the fact that it's missing does raise a few alarm bells for me and does raise suspicions as to, well, if it was on him all the time and he religiously looked after this thing as it was claimed he did, then it wouldn't just go missing. It's like me, for example, like I have certain like jewelry that I wear, like necklaces and stuff that I religiously wear. I don't ever take it off because it has sentimental value to me. And Ray obviously loved this money clip that Allison gave him that was engraved. It was one of the greatest things that he'd ever received, you know, being a wedding, beautiful wedding gift from his loving wife that he loved and adored so much that for him to just get rid of it or to lose it doesn't seem very likely to me. I think someone took it as either maybe like a trophy or they took it for some other reason. Oh, cool little money clip you know I'm gonna use it for myself you know like people do steal things from people and it could just be that whoever did what happened to Ray they took it from him before he took his trip straight through that roof maybe they took it from him as to say well oh you're not gonna need this anymore and took it from him you know what I mean like there's, there's a myriad of different ways that this could have played out but I think that if it's missing and Allison said that he never ever took it off and and always had it on him as a wedding gift from her I don't think that it was something he would have just left behind somewhere. And I think that somebody took it from him for whatever macabre reason. Another thing that was really interesting about the case was Rivera's cell phone survived the apparent fall, and it was found on top of the lower roof along with Rivera's sandals. The phone was intact and in working order. Now, the puzzling aspect is how did the phone survive the fall and still be working if it fell with Ray? I guarantee you, you drop a phone from a great height, it won't survive the fall and still be intact and in good working order. There was a theory, and I definitely believe this 
to be true that it was placed there after Ray's death. For whatever reason, someone decided to display these things after Ray's death. I do actually believe that to be true. During the investigation, around the hole on the rooftop, we find his cell phone. The phone was entirely working order. This is his cell phone that was found on the roof. And there is not a crack in the screen, um, which I find really strange. The phone is one of those things that I will never forget. I mean, you can go anywhere right now and drop your phone from three stories and something's going to happen to it. Even from the garage roof. His eyeglasses, when they were found, there wasn't a scratch on them. His injuries were severe and fatal. And it's just odd that for the force it took for him to go through that roof, that the cell phone and glasses would survive that force. It's odd. None of these objects are damaged, yet he is brutal. One flip-flop was broken, the other flip-flop, they both were laying on the rooftop. These are his flip-flops that were also um, on the roof. There's drag marks here that are pretty fresh. And then this one is, you know, this one is, is broken. I don't know how that, how all of this, how this even happened. The flip-flops phone is eyeglasses. They were almost like, it just, to me, it looks staged. It raises that question. Well, did they really fall with him? Or did someone put them there? after the fact. That is one of the most bizarre aspects of this case, are those belongings that were on the roof. And when talking to Detective Byer, the placement of those items, he just felt like it looked like they were staged. I mean, one of the bizarre things is that the cell phone wasn't broken. It was still working. His eyeglasses weren't broken. Allison told me later that she accidentally dropped those eyeglasses on her bathroom tile floor, and they broke. But they didn't break falling 14 floors. When Detective Byer told us about the placement of those, it was, they were all just about three to four feet outside of the hole um, and, and in different places. So how could they, how could they land where they did, and why, why didn't they break? That's one of the strangest aspects of this entire case. Authorities were unable to retrieve the video footage from the highly secure building to see what happened when Rivera made his way to the higher floors due to a technical problem, which I find extremely interesting. I mean, you have this building that has a very complex and technical security system, and it goes down on the very night that Ray dies. It could just be a coincidence, but I find it odd that it should be down at that time, because we can't say that Ray didn't go into the building with others, or that he didn't go, that he did or he didn't go. We can't say one way or the other that, yes, he went there and met people there. We can't say that he didn't. So there's always a question hanging over, well, did he jump off the Belvedere or did he not? I don't think he did. But then again, we can't conclusively say that he didn't. Then there was the obscure note that was uncovered from Rivera's computer. The note was typed in a small print folded up in plastic that Allison found. I think it was behind the computer, as far as I know. It was all wrapped up and folded in plastic. Uh, it was also found with a blank check. The note was addressed to brothers and sisters and referred to a well-played game. It also named famous people who died, including Christopher Reeve and Stanley Kubrick, as well as ordinary people who Rivera knew in real life. When Ray was missing, 
I just went through the entire house trying to figure out any clues of where he might be. We were looking through the office, and that's when we found a note that was behind the computer. Often in a suicide, you have a note. Most people who contemplate suicide and commit suicide, they don't want to leave their family in the lurch. They want them to understand what happened. The note was probably about, you know, this big um, in all. So it was shrunk down really, really small. And I know that he wrote the note the day he disappeared because there were scraps in the trash can. The note starts out brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, right now, around the world, volcanoes are erupting. What an awesome sight. Whom virtue unites, death will not separate. It was a very unusual note. It had different names on it, some movie star names on it, family names on it. It was very unusual. There's a whole page of people he knew but he's missed some significant people, so that seems strange. There were movies, and the movies were the ones that really stuck to him. I know what all of these things were. Nothing was really a surprise. It was just why they were all compiled, and in the format they were compiled. I stand before you a man who understands the purpose and value of our secrets. That's why I cherish them as secrets. Because it was so weird, I just took that first sentence and laid it into Google search. And the first thing that came up was Freemasons. He definitely was, you know, kind of curious in just secret societies, the Freemasons, um, and, and maybe he was looking to do a screenplay I would describe the letter as cryptic. It's kind of like reading tea leaves. In fact, uh, someone I used as a consultant when we were doing this story said, you know, maybe it's written in code. That was a well-played game. Congratulations to all who participated. Ray was a prolific writer, and he wrote all sorts of stuff everywhere. A lot of what he wrote down was just random thoughts that didn't necessarily connect. It could be from a phone number, to a philosophy idea of why the sky is blue or work. Um, and all in one pad of paper can be all of those things with not any rhyme or reason. Life is a test to see if you can control your spirit. Take care and enjoy the festivities. I uh, didn't know what to do with it, gave it to the police immediately. We actually sent the note to the FBI lab. They came back and the FBI kind of cleared the note as just an unusual note, but not suicide intent. This note, I hate because I don't understand it, but this is definitely not a suicide note. I do know that. The note included a request to make them and himself five years younger, which is just a really kind of strange thing. The, the note, I think it has been best described as being cryptic. It doesn't really make sense. It's just kind of like a, a really weird note that doesn't make sense. I mean, Alison even said in her interview that um, she found it really annoying because she didn't know what the note meant. And it was just annoying because she didn't understand it. 
The finding was so puzzling that the investigators sent the letter to the FBI and the feds determined that it wasn't a suicide note, and it sure as hell doesn't sound like one. The cryptic letter pointed to another weird detail about Ray Rivera's circumstances, and I don't know if this has ever really been looked into in any great depth, and that was his growing interest in the Freemasons. The note he left began and ended with phrases used in the Mosaic Order. A representative at the local Maryland Lodge confirmed that Rivera inquired about a membership on the same day he went missing, but didn't recall anything unusual about their conversation. Shortly before his death, Rivera was also reading books related to masonry such as The Builders. To muddy things further, his wife described a paranoia in Rivera in the weeks leading up to his disappearance. She told police that Rivera was unusually anxious. He was reportedly terrified in the days leading up to his death, according to his wife, but wouldn't confide in her about what was bothering him. About two weeks before he died, there was something that was worrying him. At that time, I didn't really think much of it. But then that Monday before he went missing, the alarm went off. There was also the instance that the producer of that episode talked about how Allison was training for a triathlon and Ray was waiting in the car as it was raining and there weren't that many people on the track. Then all of a sudden these two men came out of nowhere onto the track and Ray sprinted out of the car extremely fast to be with Allison, which indicates to me that he was trying to be there to protect Allison. The question though is what was he so afraid of? Obviously he was scared of someone hurting his wife and he knew something or something was coming and was scared that much was for sure like he knew that something was coming or he was aware that something might happen to his wife and he knew that he had to be there to protect her and I think that's why he acted the way that he did Um, there was another incident that happened about a week before Ray disappeared Allison was training for a triathlon and she wanted to go to the local track and do some sprints and normally she would just go by herself Ray was working on a deadline for his project but he insisted on going with her this day and it was raining. He waited in the car. So the, it, because it was raining, there were not a lot of people around the track. But there were two guys that came up on the track. And when that happened, Ray came flying out of the car, according to Allison, and seemed very unusually concerned. You know, it's, These are things that, in hindsight, you think about. She didn't think much of it at the time, other than, well, that's unusual. Why is he so concerned? But that's another incident that happened just prior to his disappearance. The other really spooky aspect to this case, and I find it quite sinister, was Ellison then said that their security system was tripped twice in those few weeks, but no one was found breaking and entering into the house. And when I say those few weeks, I mean the two weeks before he died. It was around about 1 a.m. that the alarms were tripped. So the first time it was tripped was 1 a.m. The second time was 1 a.m. She said that Ray raced downstairs after her with a baseball bat in his hand and had such a look of fear and terror in his eyes that she had never seen before. So she went down the stairs and then he came around the corner with this big bat. She said that Ray feared nothing, so to see him so scared was not only puzzling, but was very worrying. She called the cops, but all they said was that it was squirrels, although Allison wasn't convinced, and neither am I. Had it been once, I can see maybe, but it happened again a week later at the same time, 1am. She claimed that someone had tried to break into their home, which I believe, and also as evidenced by the fact that the window looked like it had been tried to have been jimmied open. That Monday before he went missing, the alarm went off. It was like 1 a.m. and that thing had never gone off. And I went down, um, I went down the stairs and around the corner and Ray came flying out with this big bat. And the fear in this man's eyes scared me to death. That guy was never afraid of anything. 
the police, even though I brought them out, said it was a squirrel. Then again, the following Tuesday at 1 a.m., it went off. Did Allison tell you anything more about that that maybe we didn't see on camera? Or do you have any ideas about about why it is that that didn't at least intrigue the police to look into this a little bit differently? It seems like in the two weeks before Ray disappeared that he was overly protective of Allison and overly concerned about safety. Uh, When those two alarm incidents happened, Allison describes in the episode that she's never seen that kind of fear on his face. I did ask Allison if the alarm ever went off again after those two incidents, and she said no. And they religiously set that alarm every single night, even after Ray disappeared. So it is intriguing and interesting that it only went off twice, and it was right before he disappeared. Then there was the encounter with an unknown man at the park that left her husband visibly distraught, which I've only ever seen mentioned in one online article, and it wasn't brought up in the Unsolved Mysteries episode or anywhere else. So how this fits into the puzzle, I'm not sure. Now, Rivera's last full-time job was to edit a financial newspaper called The Rebound Report, published by a division of Agora Publishing based in Mount Vernon. Family and friends of Rivera had expressed some, had said that Rivera had expressed some unhappiness about his work because some of the stocks he wrote about weren't rebounding. In the fall of 2005, Rivera left Agora full-time and began producing videos for the company under contract. Longtime friend Porter Stansbury brought Rivera to Agora. Stansbury runs one of Agora's newsletter divisions and was mentioned several times in Rivera's bizarre note. Which brings me to the mysterious company known as Stansbury and Associates. The mystery call Ray had gotten the night he died that made him run out of his house originated from Stansbury and Associates, which was owned by Ray's longtime friend, Porter Stansbury, who he was doing freelance work for. However, the call wasn't able to be traced to a specific extension within the firm, so no one has any idea who called Ray. The police traced the call and found out the call came from Stansbury and Associates, where Ray worked. But there was no way to figure out who made the call because the call came from the switchboard and they couldn't track down the caller's extension. The phone call was critical because it seemed like the phone call caught him by surprise and he's like, I gotta go, like kind of in a panic. They also never came forward and the other interesting aspect is no one but Ray and the person who made the call know what it was all about. Something about Sansbury and Associates felt off to me the more I dug into this case because there are so many questions I have and this company and Porter Stansbury keep cropping up over and over again. Apparently, according to the producer of the Unsolved Mysteries episode, she spoke with him and according and apparently he made a claim to the media and lied saying that Ray and Allison were in therapy, which wasn't true, and that Ray had some psychological issues, which again wasn't true. One of the things that was very troubling to Allison that she told me about was that he did speak to the media very early on, but what he said was, that Ray and Allison had been in therapy, which was not true, that Ray had some some psychological issues, which was not true. There is no one that we spoke to that supported that that idea. And Allison was very troubled by the fact that Porter would say that to the media because that was one of the things that probably made the police head in the direction of, oh, this was just a suicide. Now, the case is, it's, it's never been determined that it was suicide. It's still considered an undetermined case. Police theorize, probably speculate that it was 
was a suicide, but it's still an open investigation. It's a cold case, but it's still an open investigation. My question is, why would he lie about Ray like that, especially to the media? So unfortunately, because Porter Stansbury made these very public allegations about Ray and what was going on during the last few weeks of his life, it made the police think, well, you know, this guy has been friends with him for many, many years. He would know Ray inside and out. So we are going to use that as sort of a way to say, well, look, you know, Porter Stansbury has said that Ray was having a lot of trouble in his marriage. They were in therapy. He had a lot of a lot of psychological issues. How do we know that he didn't jump off the roof and may have been suicidal? But the thing is, you're basing that off of what Porter Stansbury said. Why would you not go off of what Allison said? Who would you rather believe? The wife who's been with the guy for six months and knows him inside and out and knows everything about him day in, day out, or a guy that's been, a f- been friends with him since childhood or their teenage years that probably doesn't see him all that much? I mean, the, the thing that I don't get is why why would Porter Stansbury lie about Ray? That's the biggest question that I do have about this is why would he do that? What was the goal here to lie to the media about Ray knowing what the implications of that could possibly be? The other thing is Porter also offered a measly thousand dollars and he wasn't really very interested in this case. As far as I know, Unsolved Mysteries went to him and asked him to interview him for the uh, episode and he absolutely refused to do it. Stansbury and Associates also placed a gag order on all of their employees not to talk to anybody about the case and Stansbury also didn't agree to speak with Unsolved Mysteries producers so we may never really know the connection the call that came from the firm had on Ray's death if any. Unfortunately the company he worked for Stansbury the minute the body was located and I started inquiring about it put a gag order on all their employees. Now every possible person that knew Ray worked with Ray or had any answers for me weren't allowed to legally talk to me according to their company lawyers. That's within hours of his body being discovered. His friend, Porter Stansbury, and Porter's offices of Stanbury and Associates have lawyered up. That's been a huge contention point because basically the way I understand it was Porter said that the reason that he put the gag order on the employees was so that they wouldn't talk to the media and he was just hoping that this case would quietly go away which I find really weird you've got a guy who's been friends with Ray ever since they were teenagers and he wants absolutely nothing to do with the case he offers a thousand dollars lawyer he offers a measly thousand dollars lawyers up as soon as the body is found won't talk to police won't offer any insight into what's going on and basically puts a gag order on all his employees and basically hopes that the case will go away I actually personally spoke to Porter Stansberry and asked him to interview for the episode we had a long conversation and and he declined to be interviewed ultimately, uh, he said that they recommended to their employees to not speak to the media because they wanted the entire situation to just kind of die down and not not make it a big media event. He would say that he didn't put an, a gag order on his employees, but in the piece, as you know, Mike Byer, the detective, tried to reach out and and couldn't get cooperation from many of the people that he tried to speak to. So I think that Mike felt like he hit a brick wall. If you wanted to make yourself look any more guilty, that's the best way to do it. Because now, not only will you not talk about the case, not only have you put a gag order on all your employees, but you now won't help with the police investigation. I don't quite understand why someone who's been friends with Ray for so long wouldn't want to find out what happened to your best friend. 
if something happened to my best friend and I was in a position to help, hell yeah, I'd be like, you know, I'll speak to your officers. What would you want to know? How can I help to find out what happened to my friend? The only reason I wouldn't, however, do that is if I had some involvement in his death. So I'm very heavily leaning towards the fact that I definitely think Porter Stansbury knows more about the case of what happened to Ray than what he lets on. It's just everything that he's done doesn't necessarily mean that he's guilty, but it definitely means that he knows more about this case, and I think he's definitely guilty of something for sure. The other very interesting thing as well that I found out about Stansbury and Associates, and it was also mentioned in the in the episode, was that Stansbury and Associates had sent an email into that a mass email in two thousand and two, offering to sell a special report which claimed to have inside information about USEC dealings. The solicitation said investors could double their money if they bought and sold when told. Basically, it sounds like a get rich quick scheme. That's a scam. The information turned out to be wrong, and in April two thousand and three, the SEC Security and Exchange Commission filed a lawsuit suit charging the defendants with securities fraud. Prior to that, Ray was working on a newsletter called The Rebound Report, which is a newsletter that uh, gives you stock tips to buy stocks that are like, you know, not doing well, that are going to rebound in the future. Now, before Ray came out to join Porter in his business and work with him, Stansberry puts out a letter under a firm called Pirate Investors that touts the investment in a Russian firm that's going to like discover uranium or something. The tip didn't work out and investors complained. And subsequently the SEC filed fraud charges against Stansbury and fined Stansbury over a million dollars. The company said that, you know, it was absolutely their first amendment right to make, give this advice. But according to the SEC, the advice was fraudulent. The SEC thing with um, Sansbury, it's part of what Ray needed to do when he came out initially was a little bit clean up Porter's reputation while he was also writing financial newsletters. The suit focused on a special report Stansbury wrote and Pirate published along with emails advertising the document. They claimed the investors could double their money if they paid $1,000 for a stock tip involving Bethesda Energy Company USEC Incorporated. In total, 1,217 people purchased the report, although 215 of them got their money back after complaining. Now, you imagine you got, a th- you got over 1,000 people that pay you $1,000 each for stock. Now, you can imagine how many hundreds of thousands, you know, double, quadruple your money. You can imagine how much that they're raking in over that. I mean, obviously they had to pay back 215 of them, but still you've got over a thousand, just over a thousand people or just under. That's a lot of money to rip people off of. I mean, people have killed themselves over losing money in the stock market. That's how, that's how treacherous it can be. So it was quoted that Stansbury's conduct undoubtedly involved deliberate fraud, making statements about a stock that he knew to be false. Pirate acted in reckless disregard for regulations when it published Stansbury's unbelievable claims without a shred of confirmation, stated the 49-page ruling on the subject. The violation plainly involved the risk of substantial loss to those who bought the special report and relied upon Stansbury's false statements in their stock option decisions or stock purchase decisions, end quote. Pirate was ordered to pay $801,600 in restitution along with an interest of $248,496, while Stansbury had to pay $200,400 in restitution and $62,124 in interest. Each party has also been assessed a penalty payment of $120,000. According to the Stansbury and Associates website, Stansbury describes himself as the founder of the eight-year-old company. He writes a monthly newsletter, Porter Stansbury's Investment Advisory, that deals with safe 
value investments poised to give subscribers years of exceptional returns, which I highly question after what he got caught doing. Now, to me, my question is, what else was Stansbury and Associates involved in? Because if a company is caught in one dodgy deal, as a, as I just stated, rule of thumb dictates that that's not all that they're involved in. One has to question how many more things are going on behind the scenes that we don't know about or that never came to light. My ultimate theory is Ray found out about something or stumbled upon something he shouldn't have and someone was worried about what he knew. Something that someone was willing to kill for to keep that something buried. Whatever it was that Ray knew, he knew that these people could get to him and his wife. It explains why he was so worried for his safety and why he was so scared when it was his house was broken into. So they lured him out of his house with, with some kind of phone call and he somehow went through that hole in the roof. That is my theory. However, it doesn't stop there. We still have one more, one or two more things that were brought up in this case that really make it very interesting. So there was another phone call. Now, this was never brought up in the episode, but Radio Times reported that during an interview on the You Can't Make This Up podcast, Unsolved Mysteries co-creator Terry Dunmuir introduced a second mystery caller to the case. So while the police had raised computer and were investigating it, someone called to inquire about it. Quote, when Alison Rivera's wife went to the police station to pick up Ray's computer, the detective mentioned someone had called a couple of times and asked to pick up the computers and was very interested in the status of the computers. Alison was very troubled, end quote. Nothing was found on the computers. Alison doesn't know how deep a dive the investigators did into those computers. But one of the intriguing things that happened was that when Alison went to the police station to pick up Ray's computers that they had taken from the house, as the detective was handing them to her, there were three computers, as the detective was handing them to her, he, he mentioned to her that someone had anonymously called a couple of times wanting to pick up those computers and wanting to know what the status of those computers was. And that actually kind of freaked Allison out. She was very troubled by the fact that someone was interested in those computers. So, who was that caller? Why did they want Ray's computer? Do they have any connection to the first as still unknown caller from Stansbury and Associates? As pointed out in the podcast, someone called Ray and no one knows why. There is also one other very interesting piece of information that I wasn't aware of until I listened to this episode of the podcast. The producer also said that this wasn't included in the episode as well. One of the things that the episode doesn't mention is that there was something else found in Ray's pocket when his body was found. Allison had given him a small little penny that had a heart cut out of it. She had found it when on one of her, her work trips, and she had brought it home to him and given it to him and said, hey, whenever you need me, you just hold this penny and know that I'm close. And he always kept that penny in a little bowl on his dresser. And she had always seen it there on, on the dresser. But that penny was with him in his pocket when his body was found, and that's always been very curious to Allison and very interesting. Why did he take that penny with him that day? The other question is, why did he take that with him that night unless he knew he was in some type of danger or trouble, is my question. The case, sadly, today remains unsolved. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remains unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I have covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time.
Next, on Unanswered Questions, known as Buster Crab, was a Royal Navy frogman and diver who vanished during a reconnaissance mission for MI6 around a Soviet cruiser berthed at Portsmouth Dockyard in 1956. 